Uh, several years ago, just before my oldest daughter got married, we decided to do one last family vacay. You know, just the five of us, Sue and me and our three kids. And so we splurged. We went to Paris and we rented, not rented, we, we got this little hotel room, tiny hotel room right across from Notre Dame Cathedral, nestled along the Seine River. And the first day we were out, uh, we were very jet-lagged, and I want to say that again, very jet-lagged, because it will explain a really stupid decision I made, okay? And, but we're walking along the Seine River, very, did I say very jet-lagged? And we were engaging vendors and artists and, and whatever, and we came across this one guy displaying his paintings. There on the easel was a, uh, a cityscape of Paris, and my daughter Emily, about to get married, she fell in love with it, and so I asked the guy, I said, how much? Well, he quoted for me this ridiculous price. And then I thought to myself, yeah, this is an original painting by a Parisian artist, and it's for my daughter who's about to get married. So I pulled out my wallet, and I gave him the money, and Emily was ecstatic. Until later in the afternoon when we walked into a tiny little gift shop in another part of Paris, and we saw the very same print. And we're thinking to ourselves, wait a minute, I just purchased a freshly painted picture you know, how could they have a print of it already? So we look in our, we pull out our bag and we pull it out and it too is a print. It's a copy. In fact, before the day was out, we found a bazillion copies of that print all over Paris. Now, I felt like a total jerk, but in looking back, I got to admit the guy who schmoozed me was pretty good. Okay, for starters, he had put this print on an easel to make it look like he had just painted it. Okay, in fact, next to the easel, there was a table with paintbrushes and watercolor paints on it. And, and then when I started to look at it more closely, I, I recall that he had immediately tried to distract me in conversation, said, why don't you take my picture with your daughter here? And, and, and did I say I was jet-lagged? Okay. <laughs> Now, fortunately, we're able to laugh about that experience today. You know, remember when we bought that fake painting in Paris? Yeah, it's no big deal. However, it's not so funny to be fooled by something that is a big deal. Okay, it's not funny when you get, you get fooled by something that is a big deal. Say, like what? Well, like when we, we swallow falsehoods about God and other significant spiritual matters. And that's the Apostle John's main point in the Bible passage that we're going to be studying together today. So I want you to take the sword of the Spirit, God's holy word, turn to the end of your Bible, 1 John chapter 4. Take the outline out. You're going to want to fill it in because I'm going to give you four important guidelines for discerning the difference between truth and falsehood when it comes to spiritual realities. You need these guidelines. I mean, this is one area of your life in which you do not want to be gullible. You don't want to fall for something erroneous. Too much is at stake here. You know, possibly even your eternal destiny. So we're in the, the eighth week of an 11-part study of 1 John. By the way, I've been saying throughout the series, it's a 12-part series. And then I stopped and I counted up the sermons in it this past week. There are 11. So because this is a sermon about truth versus falsehood, I thought I would correct that falsehood. All right? It's 11 parts, but we are in the eighth week. The series is called I Am a Disciple. The Apostle John keeps driving home three tests, basic tests, that true 
disciples, true followers of Jesus, are able to pass. Today's passage deals with one of those tests. I've been calling it the last few weeks the theological test. Now, several weeks ago, Pastor Eric, Eric Ferris, preached on another passage in 1 John, 1 John 2, that also covered the theological test. John repeats himself a bit in this epistle, as we've been saying. So if some of my sermon sounds familiar to you, it's because John is saying it again for the sake of emphasis. You know, a genuine Christ follower can pass the theological test. What does that mean? It means that a genuine Christ follower can correctly answer the question, who's Jesus? I mean, that, that's the Bible's most significant truth. Uh, today, however, we're going to take that theological test, we're going to apply it in broader terms, uh, teaching you how to discern the difference between spiritual truth and spiritual falsehood in general, not just with respect to Jesus, but any spirit, spiritual reality. How do we do that? How do we discern between truth and falsehood? Four guidelines. Here's number one. Test everything you hear. Test everything you hear, or read for that matter. Let me give you a little bit of historical background of the passage we're about to look at in 1 John 4. The Apostle John wrote this epistle in the early days of the church. Christianity was a relatively new faith. So there were people who had heard about Jesus and had surrendered their lives to him, but they were now regularly being exposed to conflicting views about spiritual matters. You know, members of a new faith, they themselves, new believers, how were they supposed to determine between what's true and what's false? Well, in many cases, they made this decision based upon the persuasive abilities of the person presenting the so-called truth. So if, if, if this guy, you know, was an inspiring communicator, if he could tell good stories, good jokes, you know, rivet your attention on what he had to say... Or if he had a large following, he was really popular, everybody went to hear him. Or if he had certain supernatural gifts, gifts of the Spirit, particularly the flashier ones, tongues or prophecy, and so he claimed to have a message from God, or he could heal people after he'd done his preaching, then you would be tempted to believe whatever he said. The Apostle John warns Christ followers in 1 John 4, don't be so gullible. Hey, don't be so gullible. Let me read the opening verse to you, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So what does John tell us to do with every so-called spiritual truth that we hear? Verse 1, call it out. What does he tell us to do with it? Test, test it. Good. You know, ask yourself the question... You know, did this really come from God? I, I was ruminating on this first guideline for discerning truth and, and falsehood this past week. You know, test everything. And I thought to myself, you know, I'll bet that some personality types need this guideline more than others. Now, we all need it. Okay, but, but you, you do know that there are personality types that have strengths and corresponding weaknesses. And so who might especially need this first guideline, hey, test everything you hear? Well, let me say, if you're a feeler more than a thinker, you better test everything, okay? Better test everything. If by disposition you are more trusting than suspicious or cynical, you better test everything. 
If you're more relational than independent, you better test everything. You know, if you like to hear affirming feedback as opposed to negative warnings, you better test everything. So what are some examples from contemporary culture where testing would be important? Let me give you a couple, okay? And whenever I give examples, whenever I give applications, I assume that you understand, you know, these aren't the only applications of this principle. So the upside of giving you, you applications or illustrations is it gets you thinking, oh, this is how you put this principle into practice. The downside is you might limit the application of this, this truth to those particular illustrations I give you, and I wouldn't want you to do that. So I'm just going to give you a couple of random ones. Actually, they come out of the news where you need to test what you hear. Okay, so just recently in the news, I, I read that 40% of Americans, according to a new national survey, 40% of Americans say that marriage is obsolete. Okay, marriage is, is no longer necessary. Almost half of Americans polled said that. No longer, you don't need it for sex. Okay, it's no longer necessary for a live-in uh, sort of, uh, of, of close, intimate relationship. It's not necessary for kids. You don't need to be married to raise kids. No longer required. In fact, I was talking with a friend of mine recently, a close friend, and she was dismissing the notion of marriage. She said, well, you know, it's nothing but a social construct, meaning that somewhere back in ancient times, societies decided that there are benefits to being married, and so they introduced marriage into the picture. But now today, we know that those benefits have passed from the scene, so it's, it's no longer a requirement for two people in love. It, it ought to be a menu choice not a requirement. So what do you think? You know, 40% of Americans say obsolete. It's marriage is obsolete. What do you think? John would say, test everything. You know, what does God say about this? What's God's position on marriage? You ask, well, does God have a position? Well, you better believe he does. In fact, you can't get further than the second chapter of the Bible and God's talking about marriage. Genesis chapter 2, we learn that marriage is God's design. Marriage is the very first human institution that God creates. It's not a social construct. It's something God put together. Furthermore, you come to verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. God says that this marriage that he's created is to be between a man and a woman. And, and furthermore, it is the necessary first step before you engage in a sexual relationship, the Scripture teaches. That's God's truth. So it doesn't really matter what contemporary culture says. In fact, if the next poll comes out, friends, and 90% of the people surveyed say something different than what God's truth says about marriage, it's a falsehood. It's a falsehood. You see how this works? Okay, let me give you another one. I'll give you a religious example that was in the news. I learned recently that our, our new pope, Pope Francis, is, is reviving the notion of indulgences. Now, if you're, if you're not Catholic, if you don't have a Catholic background or you don't know what indulgences are, you know, they are meritorious acts that you could perform in order to reduce the number of years that you spend in purgatory so you could go to heaven more quickly. Okay? So, what do you think? Now... Pope says if you, you, know, you climb the sacred stairs in Rome, especially if you do it on your knees, or it, listen, if you listen to his Twitter feed on Youth Day, 
Youth Rally Day. I'm not making this up. He said, if you listen to my, follow my, uh, my Twitter feed, you get some indulgences. What do you think? I mean, this guy, this guy is the head of a huge chunk of Christendom. I mean, in fact, he's a guy I like. I like a lot of what he has to say about caring for the poor and whatnot. But in this respect, test everything. What does God's word say? Well, for starters, if indulgences are supposed to reduce your time in purgatory, you need to know the Bible doesn't say anything about purgatory. Nothing in here about purgatory. You know, but more importantly, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's by grace you're saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, Paul writes. It's a gift of God. It's not by works, meritorious works of any kind, no indulgences, so that no one can boast. You gotta test everything you hear, whether it comes from contemporary culture or it comes from a religious leader or it comes from your college professor or it comes from your favorite self-help author or it comes from your friends at school or it comes from an online website or it comes from a Hollywood movie. You know, we should probably never walk out of a movie without asking ourselves the question, so what was the director trying to get me to believe? Because if, if you don't think directors have agendas, you're gullible. Test everything you hear. Now go back to 1 John 4, verse 1, because I want to put some final punch into this directive by rereading the last line of the verse to you. Last line of verse 1, John says, Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Two words, if you've got your, your Bible, that you want to circle in that sentence. They're side by side. The first is the word many. Because it underscores the fact that we're going to run into falsehoods every day. Lots of them. Many of them. Everywhere you turn, you're going to be hearing them from the media, from friends, from whatever. Discernment is going to be constantly challenged. You better be on your toes. Second word to circle is the word false. Many false prophets. I want you to understand there's a difference between falsehood and mistakes or errors. Okay, mistakes or errors, they're kind of like, oops, you know, somebody dropped the ball, no harm intended, they just, you know, they goofed up. Falsehood says, no, this is intentional. This is a deliberate distortion or a deliberate denial of the truth. This is what makes falsehood so dangerous. I want you to go down to the last verse of the passage today. We're going to take it through verse 6, but I want you to look at the end of verse 6. John is summing up everything he says in this paragraph, and he says, end of verse 6, this is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Do you follow what John is saying in his summary statement about truth and falsehood? He's saying there's a spirit behind each of them. You know, but behind truth, there's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Behind the spirit of falsehood is who, whose spirit do you think this is? Yeah, Satan's spirit. So you, you think, you know, you're a student and you could just kind of go with the flow of what your friends believe, even if it is a falsehood, so what? John would say, this is serious business. There's a spirit behind what you hear. It's either the Holy Spirit of God, it's truth. Or it's the spirit of God's arch enemy. You better watch out. Number two, discover what the Bible teaches. Discover what the Bible 
teaches. Okay, number one, test everything you hear. Okay, whether it's about God or about sex, about money, about politics, about parenting, about life purpose, test it all. Number two, discover what the Bible teaches. Pick it up at verse two. That's where we left off. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is in the world. Okay, John now gives us a very specific case study to illustrate the importance of discerning truth and falsehood. The case, case study is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? Verse 2, John spells out the truth about Jesus, which he says comes from God's Spirit. And in verse 3, he says that everyone who denies this truth about Jesus believes something that has come from the Spirit of Antichrist. Now, when you see that word Antichrist... You know, the, Eric Ferris pointed this out a few weeks ago. I don't want you to think in terms of the ultimate bad boy who comes at the end of history and opposes God and his people. That's Antichrist, capital A. I feel like I'm doing YMCA here, okay? So we're not talking about that Antichrist. John's using it, not capital A, kind of small a, to speak of a generic spirit that's out there, kind of an Antichrist vibe that promotes falsehood about Jesus. So what is the truth about Jesus? Well, look at the middle of verse 2. The truth is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. If you believe that, John says, then you've got a grip on the truth. If you deny that, then you've succumbed to falsehood. Now, there are, there are actually two truths in that line, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Let, let me tell you what the two truths are and why each one is, is so important. Okay, the first truth is this, that it's the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Now, some of us, we've thought that Christ is Jesus' last name, right? So it's Jesus Christ, like I'm Jim Nicodem. But no, no, it's not a name. Christ is actually a title in Scripture. It's a title that first appears in the Old Testament. It's the word Messiah in the Old Testament. God, God promises a Savior who's going to come to earth. This is the Messiah, the Christ. And we learn two things about this Christ in the Old Testament. We learn that he will be a conquering king who will one day rule the earth. And secondly, we learn that he will be a suffering servant who will lay down his life for the sins of God's people. Two very interesting concepts. John says Jesus is that Christ. He's that conquering king. He's that suffering servant. Jesus is the Messiah. The, the, the second truth that's embedded in this statement, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is, is that God's son Jesus is fully man. He's come in the flesh. Now, there was a heresy afoot in John's day that he wanted to squelch. Okay, there were heretics who were saying, well, Jesus was merely a man, but for a time he was inhabited by a supernatural spirit from God. So here is, here is this strictly man, Jesus, and at the time when his ministry began, when John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River and he came out, the supernatural spirit descended on him, and just before his crucifixion, the, spiritual, the supernatural spirit left John strenuously objects to that. He said, we're not talking about a man who for a time was filled with a supernatural spirit. We're talking about the Son of God, full deity, who came in the flesh, full humanity, fully God, fully man. You say, why is this so important? 
Well, let's start with the fully man part. Okay. Humanity is in trouble. Humanity, every one of us has sinned, and the Bible says that our sin separates us from God, the author of life. We're destined to die. The wages of sin, Scripture teaches, is death. So Jesus comes to pay that penalty. Jesus comes to lay down his life. He's the suffering servant prophesied in the Old Testament who will bear the sins of people on the cross. But in order to pay humanity's penalty... He has to become one of us. Okay, in order to pay what we owe, he has to be one of us, fully man. On the other hand, what makes the sacrifice, what makes the death of this one man good for all who would put their hope and trust in him? How does it pay the penalty for everybody who through the ages would surrender their lives to him? It could only happen if this one man's life was of infinite worth, right? That's why it's so critical that we understand Jesus to be the eternal Son of God whose sacrifice on the cross was of infinite worth for all who would put their hope and trust in him. So fully God, fully man. Let me ask you a personal question here. Do you acknowledge these truths about Jesus? Now, before you give me a quick answer, I want to define my word, acknowledge here. It's a word that pops up in the middle of verse 2 and again in verse 3. You've got to acknowledge certain truths, John says. The word acknowledge means both, listen, it means both to believe the truth and to embrace the truth. To believe the truth and to embrace the truth. Not enough to believe the truth. In fact, even Satan and his demons believe the truth about Jesus, Right? They know who Jesus is. They don't embrace it. So the question for you is, do you both believe this truth and do you embrace it? Okay, do you believe the truth that Jesus has come as conquering king who will one day rule the planet? If so, have you embraced this truth for yourself? Have you surrendered your life to him as your king? Have you abdicated the throne of your life and said, Jesus, you take over, you're my new ruler? Ever done that? Ever embrace the truth? You know, the truth is that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the suffering servant, come to give his life to pay for people's sins. The question for you is, have you ever embraced it by repenting of your sins and saying, Jesus, I need you to save me from the penalty and the power of my sins. You know, become my savior. This is, this is such an important point to consider Friends, John says in the closing chapter of this epistle, we're going to get to this in a couple of weeks, 1 John 5, 11 and 12, he writes, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. So whoever has the Son, whoever's embraced the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So do you have Jesus? Yeah, I've read an alarming statistic just this past week, survey done of a thousand churches recently, and it was discovered that the longer you sit in church without surrendering your life to Christ, in other words, you're here, you're kicking the tires, you're exploring this, the longer you hang out here without making that decision for yourself, the less likely you'll be to ever make it. I thought to myself, oh, that couldn't, that's so counterintuitive. 
I would think that the longer you hang out at Christ's community church and the more you're inundated with the truth about who Jesus is, eventually you'll make that, you gotta make that decision. According to the research, no, the longer you sit here and put it off, the greater the likelihood is you'll never surrender your life to Christ. And so I would say to you, if you've been here for a month or six months or a year or two years or five years and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, do it today. You know, at Bartlett, Blackberry Creek, DeKalb, and here in St. Charles, stop at the Welcome Center. Say, I want to surrender my life to Christ today. I want to do this officially and know that I've done it. And, and if you do have Jesus, you know, do you know somebody who doesn't? I'll bet that you do. And I want to ask, have you allowed our pluralistic culture to silence you? Have you allowed our pluralistic culture to convince you that you ought to keep the truth about Jesus to yourself. You know, that's the tolerant thing to do. Let me ask you, is it, is it loving, is it tolerant to let someone you know ascribe to a falsehood that will deprive them of eternal life? I don't think so. See, if we're not sharing Jesus, the truth about Jesus, it calls into question whether we really believe it, whether we, we really embrace it ourselves. Now, there's a very important footnote to this point that I'm making here uh, regarding the truth about Jesus. In fact, the footnote I'm about to give you is actually my second major guideline that I gave you a few moments ago about how to discern truth and falsehood. Okay, the, the guideline has to do with where we go to get our truth. So, so with respect to Jesus, we've been talking about Jesus, where did we discover the truth about Jesus? I mean, the, the answer to that question is so obvious that you might miss it. I mean, how do we know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the conquering king who will one day rule the planet, the suffering servant who gave his life on the cross to pay for sins? How do we know that Jesus is fully God, fully man? Did we just make that, that up? Where did we get our truth? Call it out. The Bible. God's holy word. God's revealed word. And I underscore the word reveal, very important word. See, there are a lot of truths in this life you will only know if God chooses to reveal them to you. If God did not reveal them to you, you would be left to guess. There are things that you know either through revelation, God having revealed himself, condescended to make himself known in his word. It's either going to come to you through revelation or it's going to come to you through speculation. Well, I like to think this. I like to think that. Yeah, like, who cares what you think? <laughs> See, now, I've told this story before. In fact, I, I included in my, include it in my book, Foundation, on the reliability of the Bible. I was grocery shopping one day, and this lady calls out to me in the middle of Jewel's, Pastor Jim! And I go over, and we meet, and she says, yeah, she just came for the first time to Christ's community, some outreach event. I think it was a Christmas Eve service. So I just came to Christmas Eve. I loved it. Love your church. I said, great, so are we going to be seeing you for a weekend service sometime? And she looked at me and she shook her head and she said, no, my husband and I have our own ideas about God. As often as I hear that, and you've heard that a bazillion times, right? People who say, well, I got my own ideas about God. As often as I hear it, the sheer arrogance of it never ceases to amaze me. You've got your own ideas about, and that kind of makes them right? Are you kidding me? I want God's ideas about God, don't you? I want to know what God reveals about himself. I don't care what you think he's like. 
I want to know what God says he's like. Friends, the same thing could be said about any important truth, not just the truth about God. Discover what the Bible teaches about it. Insist on revelation, not speculation. Okay, what, is the, what, is the, what does God's word say about some of the issues that are up for grabs in today's culture? I, I want to know what God's word says about homosexuality. I, I want to know what God's word says about working for a mean boss. Some of you didn't know that's in the Bible, right? You're going to be looking for it now. Okay, it's in there. I, I want to know what the Bible says about where self-esteem comes from. Everybody's talking about self-esteem. Where does it come from? I want to know what, what the Bible says about my role as husband or managing money or racial issues or dating or movies to avoid. Or, you know, if you go through life speculating, you're just kind of making it up, doing your own whimsical thing as you go, you're going to fall prey to a lot of falsehoods. See, God is... God has gone to the work of revealing his truth to us in a book. So get to know the Bible. Discover what the Bible teaches. You get it? Good. Number three, ask the Holy Spirit for illumination. Okay, let's move along in the passage. We're up to verse four. Ask the Holy Spirit for illumination. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Okay, we got to define some terms here. Let's start with the word them in the middle of verse 4. Okay, John's writing to Christ's followers, and he, he calls them dear children, and he says, you've overcome them. So who is the them that Christ followers overcome? Well, John has been describing, go back to verse 3, false teachers who promote ideas that are contrary to God's truth. So he says Christ followers can overcome this falsehood, these teachers. You say, great. But what does John mean by the word overcome? Overcome. Is he encouraging us to destroy people who feed us falsehoods? Is he suggesting that we wrestle them to the ground or we burn them at the stake? Overcome them. No, overcome simply means that we're able to keep these people from deceiving us. We're able to refute their falsehoods with the truth of God's word. So how do we do that? How are we able to pull this off? Does it require going to seminary and getting a degree in theology? No, no, John says. He says that, look at verse 4 again, we have an internal truth tutor who's much greater than the internal spirit that empowers those who promote falsehood. It's a mouth, mouthful, so let me say it again. We have an internal truth tutor who is greater than the internal spirit that empowers those who promote falsehood. Who is this internal tutor that John is referring to? If you know, call it out. Who is it? The Holy Spirit. The moment you surrender your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside. This is the bonus. This is, seals the deal. You surrender to Christ as king, as savior, and he sends his spirit to come live in you. If you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, you don't yet have the Holy Spirit of God living on the inside. If you don't yet have the Holy Spirit of God living on the inside, listen, then your ability to discern truth and error when it really matters is seriously hampered. So how does the Holy Spirit provide discernment in the life of a Christ follower? Let's say you've got him on the inside. What does he do? Does he speak to you in an audible voice? 
kind of like the directions that are given to you by your GPS. Turn left in 500 feet. Turn left in 500 feet. And then you miss the left-hand turn and you fly past it. And what does the GPS say? Recalibrating. Is that how the Holy Spirit provides us with discernment? No, Jesus explains it to his followers this way. John 14, verse 26. You might want to jot that reference down. Go back to it later. John 14, 26. Jesus says, The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Let me read that again. The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. See, most often the discernment that the Holy Spirit gives us comes by way of helping us understand what Jesus has taught as recorded in God's Word for us, and then he brings those truths that we've learned, he brings them to our minds when we most need them. So the Holy Spirit works hand-in-hand with the Bible. John Calvin, one of the great leaders of the church back in the 16th century, wrote, unless the spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, unless the Holy Spirit is present, there is little or no profit in having God's word in our hands. See, we need a Bible, but we also need God's spirit to illuminate it. So are you asking God's Spirit to instruct you as you daily read God's Word? Or if you're in a community group, as you're preparing your community group lesson for the week? You know, are you opening this book and you're saying, okay, Holy Spirit, you're the teacher. You're the instructor. You're my personal tutor. As I read it, help me to grasp what, what I'm reading. Help me to apply it to my life. The Holy Spirit provides what theologians refer to as illumination. He lights up the Bible so that we can read it, so we can understand it, so we can apply what we've learned. Last year, maybe this analogy will help, last year I replaced my uh, first generation Kindle, which I've had for years, with a brand new backlit Kindle. And the, uh, the joy of it is, now I can read in bed at night. So when Sue says to me, would you turn off the lamp so I could go to sleep? So it used to be when I, you know, just was reading a print Bible, a uh, you know, paper Bible, you turn off the light, you can't see a thing. Book's done, it's over, right? Not anymore. <laughs> I've got a backlit Kindle, okay? It, it, it lights up. When we read or study the Bible, we won't see, we won't see the truths that God wants us to see. We won't see the applications that God wants us to make unless we've got the Holy Spirit for illumination. See, let, let me throw out one bonus thought here. You know, I, I'm a champion of Christ followers learning to read and understand and apply the Bible on their own, which, which means nothing but you and your Bible, the Holy Spirit, and a pen and paper. Now, I've, I, you know, I've got nothing against Christian books or fill-in-the-blank Bible study guides. They, they could be helpful, but I happen to think that Christ followers depend too heavily on them. You've got the Holy Spirit of God living on the inside. You know, th- this is why I will constantly beat the drum, become a daily Bible reader, go to that Scripture Union daily Bible reading schedule that we provide. By the way, the new one came in for the next three months. So if you use the hardcover daily devotional guide, it's at the Resource Center, 
at each of our four campuses for the next three months. If you want it electronically, you could go online and, and get it electronically. Just read the book on your own without a study guide. Just the Holy Spirit. Ask him to teach you. What do you want me to see? What do you want me to apply? This is why I wrote the Bible Savvy books and why I blog a couple times a week. I want you to know you can do this on your own. You've got the Holy Spirit for illumination. Number four. Choose your teachers. Oh, there's one thing I do need to say about some of the principles in Bible Savvy, which I, I forgot to say at last night's service. At the Resource Center, we've got some diligent people on our staff who took some of the principles from the book Context and the book Walk, you know, how to read and apply the Bible for yourself, and they put them on bookmarks, you know, hard copy uh, bookmarks, uh, thick, uh, weighty, cardboard-type material. Uh, they're really wonderful. They're your free, yours free of charge. Stop at the Resource Center. Number four, choose your teachers carefully. Let's go back and read the closing verses of the text. Verse 5, he's talking about the false teachers. He says, they are from the world and therefore speak from the world, from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We're from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Who are you going to trust? Um, I was driving down one of our winter-ravaged roads recently with all the potholes, and I hit a big one. And the minute I hit it, I heard this clunk underneath my car. And then for the next couple of miles, rattle, 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 rattle. And so I got to where I was going, and I, I parked, and I got out, and I stuck my head under. And sure enough, my exhaust pipe was hanging by a thread. So fortunately, I knew I had to get it fixed uh, soon. So fortunately, Sue, Sue graciously agreed to exchange cars with me the next day so she could drop mine off. And I said, you know, take it to one of those big places, okay, with multiple mechanics, and they move lots of customers in and out every day. Just get it done. i got to get my car back. Now, typically, I don't do it that way. I, I've got one mechanic, a one-man shop that I've gone to for 25 years because I trust him. I trust him. But I said, no, this time just go to a super franchise. Get it done. So later that day, I get a call from super franchise, from a, a mechanic, and I was initially pleasantly surprised because he said to me, you know, we, we fixed the tailpipe, 47 bucks. And I'm thinking, maybe I've misjudged these big guys. And then he paused and he said, and we checked out some other things as well. And he started to list what I should have fixed. And I interrupted a couple of times and I said, well, like, this is dangerous. This is immediate fix. Well, not necessarily, but I'd recommend it. And we got to the end of the list and he said, I'm not making this up. He said, now I've tallied it up and with the discount, I could do all this work for you for just a little over $2,000. Would you like to leave your car tonight or bring it back tomorrow? I said, I'll be by like in three minutes, you know, and the next day I took my car to my trusted mechanic, you know, who, who looked it over and he said, yeah, we'll need to do some work here, but, you know, a, a small portion of what had been recommended. Who can you trust these days? Especially to tell you the honest-to-goodness truth about really important stuff, especially spiritual matters. Look at verses 5 and 6. John warns us to watch out for false teachers. He says one of the ways that we'll recognize the false teachers is by their popularity with the world. Verse 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world, hey, the world is listening to them. 
John says, watch out for these people who are popular mouthpieces. Isn't this an interesting litmus test? You know, because we tend to believe stuff because of its popularity, right? You know, we tend to believe stuff because it's been said by our peer group. Or it's been said by our our favorite news station. We, We tend to believe stuff because it's been said by a sports star or a rock band or a political party that we belong to. It's been said by a popular talk show host or a best-selling author. Everybody listens to these guys. They're hugely influential. Right, John says, which is why I don't trust them. See, if they're popular with the world, there's a good chance they're not in sync with the truth. Wow, moms and dads, if we could just teach that principle to our kids, right? So the, the, the truth is seldom found in a crowd. It's most often a minority viewpoint. Say, so if everybody is on some bandwagon, we better be highly suspicious of that bandwagon. And that bandwagon could be just about anything. I mean, that bandwagon could be the jeans you're supposed to buy. Why? Because everybody's wearing them. Look, look at the news. Every day there's a new bandwagon out there. You know, smoke some weed. It's, it's now legal in Colorado and Washington. The majority of voters say this is a good thing. L- listen, friends, if everybody is saying something's right, if the New York Times and Katy Perry and, and, and Donald Trump and CNN, are all, they're all saying it's right, good chance it's wrong. <laughs> so who can we count on to give us the truth? Well, John's response in verse 6 sounds a bit cheeky, sounds a little arrogant. John says, well, we're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Is John just full of himself? Or was he uniquely qualified to be a truth dispenser? You know, I think that John was uniquely qualified to be a truth dispenser, just like I think certain people today are uniquely qualified to dispense truth. What are the qualifications? Well, first, you know, consider John. He was a mature, respected Christian leader. In fact, John was an apostle. He's speaking here. You can trust us. We got God's word. He's speaking as an apostle, someone who had been handpicked and mentored by Jesus. You know, I, I would encourage you to get your truth from people who are similarly qualified. They're spiritually mature. You know, again, if I could speak to students for for a moment here, that that means if your mom, your dad is a Christ follower who spends time in the Bible, there's a greater likelihood they're going to give you truth than your friends at school. So you want to go to people who know Christ, who are spiritually mature. Second, you know, John was orthodox. And what what I mean by that is that what, what he taught agreed with what the leaders of the church across the board were teaching. I've got a you know, humorous illustration for this, but before I tell it to you, I'm going to ask our worship teams at our four campuses to come out at this point, and when we're done here, we're going to sing one last song of praise to Jesus. Our service has all been about worshiping him today. We want you, you going out of our four auditoriums singing his praise. It's also a time of offering, and I want you to think of your offering, not in a perfunctory sort of way. I want you to think of bringing your gifts to a great king to a majestic Lord and Savior. May it be part of your worship when we take our offering. One of my favorite Bible teachers loves to tell the story about speaking at a conference. And uh, the speaker 
just before him. He was seated on the platform, and the speaker just before him was drawing some principle out of God's word. Only trouble was it wasn't coming out of God's word. He was forcing it into the passage. He was distorting what the Bible said in order to make his point. He had a point to make, and he was going to see it in the Bible, whether it was there or not. So he finished, and he sat down, and he very smugly turned to this favorite Bible teacher of mine, and he said, I'll bet you've never seen that in the Bible before. And this Bible teacher responded, friend, nobody has seen that in the Bible before. <laughs> nobody has seen it. Watch out for people, listen, watch out for people who say that the Bible supports their position on this or that. When in fact their position conflicts with how the church has understood the Bible on that issue for centuries. See, when it comes to truth, you don't want to go with innovative Bible interpretations. You want to stick with orthodoxy. This is what the church has always taught. Truth versus falsehood. How do you know the difference? How can you build your life on truth? Well, test everything you hear or everything you read. Start doing that this week. Don't walk away from a conversation. Don't walk away from a TV show. Don't walk for, away from something you read in, the, in the, the newspaper or online without asking yourself the question, what's God's truth about this? Which leads to the second point, discover what the Bible teaches. Thirdly, ask the Holy Spirit for illumination because without that illumination, you're not going to understand what God's Word is teaching. And lastly, choose your teachers carefully.